0: Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville,
1: and I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo returns for a second term as the state bans gender affirming care for minors. Governor Ron DeSantis says Latipo is a counterweight to what he calls the entrenched medical establishment. Critics say Ladapo's views are way outside. The mainstream. Yeah,
0: that's right, Matthew. Two panels of doctors appointed by the governor uh, voted to ban gender affirming care for minors in the state. This applies only to new patients. Uh, However, the ban goes against the guidance of most of the major medical organizations, including the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association. Earlier this week, I spoke with pediatrician Dr. Raul Sanchez, an expert in gender affirming care. And he told me what he thinks this decision, the effect that it will have. Let's listen. Dr. Sanchez, good to be with you, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Could I begin by asking you your reaction to the state's move to ban gender-affirming care for some trans youth? What's your reaction as a specialist in this practice?
2: Sure. Um, I would say... Just to broaden that, not only my reaction, but the reaction of, of many medical providers, mental health care providers, um, it's, it's shocking. It's, um, it's sad. You know, um, so I, I'm, I'm saddened by what the consequence, the effects I know that this is going to have on this population. I mean, this, there's, there's two things. So the one would be um, the effect of persons who present later. Or children who present later as transgender that really um, need gender affirming care but will not have access to it. But um, but just as bad is it sends a message to our our um, trans and, and gender diverse pediatric population that um, that they don't that they don't deserve care or or almost worse yet, like it's almost like there's something wrong with you. And um, and it's it's those messages and, and those messages are what are. One of the main reasons why this population can have increased in, increased incidences of anxiety, depression, even suicidality, and it's all just mm-hmm. it's, it's it's these it's these messages that society sends. So it's it's really I'm really saddened by it. I'm saddened that our medical community did not follow um, what is standard of care um, in making this decision. Uh,
0: this does fly in the face of. Uh most experts that uh, understand this care and why it's important. And it's the first time the state has used medical boards to restrict care in this way for transgender patients. Now, you treat patients that need gender-affirming care. Can you explain what that care entails? Because there are a lot of misconceptions about it.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions, and and even that the... um, this is a misconception that we saw uh, um, a little earlier this year with the release of, this, of the fact sheet statement by the Department of Health. Um, one of the biggest misconceptions is is the only, quote-unquote, care for a child, so a prepubertal child, is just supporting that child. And support, is particularly from families, from parents, has been shown to lower, um, lower um, the negative mental health outcomes that can be experienced because... They're, they're just normalizing and loving their child for who they are, and um, and that's just allowing that child to to um, be able to socially uh, make the decisions they want to make in terms of a transition, such as name or how they want to dress, you know. But that's 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 really it for anybody pre-pubertal. Um, once and then that that um, care can shift once a child enters into puberty, and um, and so the so basically the medical care, if we talk about straight medicine, would be um, the option of either um, suppressing puberty or allowing puberty to halt or not progress at a – like it doesn't halt the child's growth, but it halts the advancement of, of secondary sexual characteristics while perhaps that child um, continues to grow and understand that gender and um, decide at one point if they're ready to do more gender-affirmative um, treatment with either feminizing or masculinizing hormone therapy. So then, the other arm of that is a child who is ready, a pubertal child who is ready for feminizing or masculinizing hormone therapy, and and it, it really involves. Um, it's an extensive evaluation. It involves a mental health professional who is specialized in um, in gender care and understands um, the, how to how to evaluate the child and know that. Um, that 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 they, and feel comfortable that that child's gender has, is is um, is is really um, um, secure. I don't know, for um, maybe lack of a better word. Um, it also involves somebody on the medical side that's writing for those medicines to also understand that um, that child's gender and understand if that child has gender dysphoria, which which basically um, is part of the recommendation is is um, for for that care, and then um, it's. Care for the care for the patient is also very much about consent. It's about consent from the families, the parents. It's about um, consent from the child himself. It's it's everybody should understand and consent and really involves understanding the medication, understanding the risks, the benefits, any fertility um, um, consequences. It's it's really a, a detailed discussion and and, it, and and once again, I advocate for it's a discussion that should be had between the mental health provider, the medical provider, and the families and um and not the um not anybody outside of that and which is which is what's going on right now with this now, um th- let me then, a-
0: mm-hmm. go ahead
2: no, no no and and oh no it's fine and then i was just going to say there's also a part of it a part of this that that um a, an assessment of the child um, mental and physical assessment is the child healthy is the child um any any psychological issue stable so it's, it's all of those things it's it's a detailed evaluation it's It takes time. It's not overnight.
0: Okay. So the state is arguing that there is not enough evidence to show that things like hormone therapy, puberty blockers, and especially surgery uh, are effective treatments for gender dysphoria. They will say that some European countries have limited this type of care for minors, although none of them, none of those other countries have banned it outright as Florida has done. Uh, we do need to note the American Academy of Pediatrics and other mainstream medical voices support this care. But what's your response to the state's position that this is not effective and that it could sometimes be harmful?
2: So so in just in commenting on everything you just said, too, so in other, in other countries, you're right, it's not that it's been banned, but it's been more um, regulated in gender centers, Um and, um, and the reason why we can actually do it a little bit more broadly is we, we have um, WPATH, the World Professional Association for Trans Health, which runs conferences, workshops, mentorship groups. There's a lot of great training and mentorship and great information in our country that can allow physicians to, to train. Um, so, okay, so anyway, so that's sort of my comment on that. But, but um, in terms of... Um, yeah, I mean it's it's everything that you just said. The, it's more way more than the American Academy of Pediatrics, right? The AMA, the American Academy, the Endocrine Society, which is the society that really starts by publishing, and they did. They they are the society that published the clinical standards for for this care. Um, there's been many research um, um, studies, and now, admittedly, the research studies are on smaller populations. Um, and it really has to do with the fact that this is we're talking to a small percentage of, of the population, right? So they're smaller studies, but um, but they're good, solid studies. And um, and um, and just I'm more on the I'm more on the clinical, practical side. to Be honest with you. Um, and on the clinical, practical side, the outcomes I've seen with my patients are just are are dramatic. You know, um, the um, by allowing a, a child when they're ready to medically. through the affirmation process it just does amazing things to their mental health to their sense of well-being their sense of self their sense of identity and um, and I just I I feel like you have to be you have to be sort of on the ground level um, with the families and walk through this with 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 the kids to really understand this effect and you you could look at the research and the research is solid and it is there But there's a whole other part to this, and that's kind of being at the ground level. I'm not sure that anybody that I'm aware of on the Board of Medicine has been at this level, and so maybe really doesn't understand that.
0: Mm. Well, Dr. Raul Sanchez, good to get your insights on this, and thanks for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Well, on Monday, following the ban on gender-affirming care for minors in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis announced State Surgeon General Joseph Ladapoe will remain in his position for the governor's second term. Now, During his year in office, Ladapoe has been a controversial figure because of his views on the COVID-19 pandemic and treatments for transgender people. So what does Lardipo's reappointment mean not only for the state, but for Governor DeSantis' second term as governor and his rivalry with Donald Trump? Give us a call. Let us know what you think. 305-995-1800 is the number. That's 305-995-1800. Send us a tweet. That website is still up and running, so you can tweet us while you can, at Florida Roundup. And joining us now to talk more about this is Jim Rossica, editor of City and State Florida. Jim, thanks so much for being with us.
3: And thank you for having me.
1: So, Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo has been a polarizing figure. What has been his input into the issue of gender, gender affirming care in, in the state of Florida?
3: Well, I think it's fair to say that everything that we've seen happening in terms of what the Board of Medicine has done, what the Board of Osteopathic Medicine has done, is certainly in lockstep with what he thinks, and by extension, uh, it is in lockstep with what Governor DeSantis thinks and wants. I hate to use uh, an expression that may be dated for some of your listeners, but there's uh, from the old Star Trek episode, there's the term mind meld. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that Dr. Latipo and and the governor are in mind meld on many of these issues, particularly as it comes to the question of uh, transgender care and particularly transgender care for people under the age of 18. Um, and so that's why it should be no surprise, uh, by the way, that uh, Dr. Latipo was asked to stay on uh, into uh, the second term of the governor's administration.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what does that reappointment mean for how the state moves forward with its approach to this and maybe other issues such as the state's ongoing response to COVID-19 and potentially, you know, other things that may come up under the orbit of the Surgeon General?
3: Well, Matthew, I don't know if you saw, but uh, you know, welcome to Florida. COVID-19 mission accomplished. But where, where, when, when are we, where are we talking about COVID-19 anymore? And I, I really don't say that facetiously. I, I, I don't. At least from the Surgeon General, uh, from the administration, uh, COVID-19 is not top of mind anymore. Uh, what is top of mind are um, Partly a lot of these uh, culture war issues that you started to see playing out in this last uh, 2022 legislative session. uh, And I have no doubt we will see uh, more of the same in the 2023 legislative session that starts in March of next year. Um, So expect to see uh, more more of the same and, and the same of the same.
1: Right. At a medical, at a recent medical board hearing earlier this month, that's the one where it was decided or confirmed to uh, put that ban in place on gender affirming care for minors. Uh, State Representative Ana Escamani, a Democrat from the Orlando area, told the board they were doing the work of the legislature. I'm wondering, though, Jim, do you see this issue heading back to the legislature at some point or is it well beyond that now?
3: The only way that I would see it coming before the legislature is if somebody in leadership decides that this has to be addressed statutorily and not administratively, that is not in regulations Uh, that could well happen. Um, Bear in mind that this the, the leadership that is now about to be in place in the House and the Senate, that is the incoming House Speaker Paul Renner and the incoming Senate president, Kathleen Pasadomo. Uh, She from Southwest Florida, Naples to be exact, and he from uh, Palm Coast. I I still think they're, obviously they're getting their teams in order right now. uh, And we haven't yet heard a lot of hints about major policy thrusts that they're gonna be pursuing this session. Although I can assure you that or I'm willing to bet, rather, the the organization session of the legislature, Mm -hmm. which is this upcoming Tuesday, is going to happen here in the Capitol. That's when the lawmakers officially select uh, Pasadomo and uh, Renner as president and speaker, respectively. And obviously, Mm -hmm. there are now Republican supermajorities in both chambers. Um, So it will be interesting to hear what their acceptance speeches will be uh, on both sides of the rotunda when we uh, really kick things off
1: on Tuesday. There's not just politics in the state of Florida at play, of course. It's bigger than that, right? I mean, there's been so much speculation over the last six months to a year over whether or not DeSantis wants to run for president and when that may happen. Then there's that rivalry kind of looming over the whole thing with uh, former President Donald Trump. I wonder how you see that sort of working into this and and how that interplay play may uh, affect policy going forward in Florida on on this and other potentially polarizing issues?
3: Some of my colleagues ahead of me may disagree with me, but I, I don't see it affecting it at all. I think you're going to hear uh, the same thing that you've always heard from this governor, from his administration. You're gonna see the same interests. You're gonna see the same alarm bells go off when they feel that something is wrong. Um, You know, I think the governor has pretty much set the tone for the indefinite future in his acceptance speech on election night. I I believe the quote was Florida is where woke goes to die. Mm -hmm. Um, I expect that that we're going to see that unpacked uh, beginning in the next few months. Just just exactly how it is uh, going into the future, at least how uh, how how Florida is going to be the the burial ground for wokeness. 305-995-1800
0: 305-995-1800 here on the Florida Roundup as we speak with Jim Rosica about these issues in this state. Lots of calls. Uh, let's begin with Kevin. Kevin in Tallahassee. Hi, Kevin. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, hi. I'm in Gainesville, not Tallahassee. Oh, okay. And, oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. That's what, that, the reason I called is um, uh, Latifos opposition to mRNA vaccines is going to continue to cost lives. There's a a very interesting article that came out in World Med Health Policy called Death by Political Party, the Relationship Between COVID-19 Death and Political Party Affiliation in the United States. And what they did is they just looked at, uh, you know, compared voter registration to death certificates from COVID. What they found is that there was no difference between Democrats and Republicans up until Vaccines became readily available, and after that, there was a wide divergence in the death rate and in, in the numbers of deaths among Democrats lower than Republicans.
0: Which All right, uh,
4: I think can reasonably reasonably be attributed to the uh, propaganda that's been put forth by the Republican Party. Kevin, almost at a time. Thanks danger. for that.
0: Uh, before we say goodbye, Jim, do you want to respond to that caller?
3: Um, I've seen some of that same coverage and, uh, you know, I I don't know how to respond to it other than I I don't know that any of those stories are going to change how this how this health department, how this surgeon general, how this governor continues to uh, uh, approach health issues the same way they do. I I would suspect and, and would be willing to lay money on the fact that they're going to continue to be against vaccine mandates, that they're going to be continue to be against vaccines for younger children. Uh, And despite what's been reported in terms of death rates and and which which registered party is not going to change their positions. Yeah, that's right. Uh,
0: Jim Rosica, editor at City and State Florida. Thank you. And more politics to discuss when we come back this time on School Boards. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup thanks for listening I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville
1: and I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa well Republicans in Florida had a very good night on November 8th that's even as elsewhere in the United States the red wave that some had anticipated anticipated rather didn't quite materialize Conservative candidates in nonpartisan school board races also notched up wins statewide with all six school board members endorsed by Governor DeSantis winning their runoffs. DeSantis is the first Florida governor to endorse school board members. That's according to Politico. Yeah,
0: that's uh, right, Matthew. Now, in Florida and other states, the conservative organization Moms for Liberty campaigned for candidates who focused on issues like what books should be in school libraries or not, how racism and gender are taught or not talked about in classrooms. That prompted a pushback from teachers unions and left-leaning organizations. For more, we're joined by Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association. Hi, Andrew.
5: Hello, Melissa. How are you today?
0: Good to have you. And another Andrew we'll go to in a moment, Andrew Atterbury, education reporter for Politico. Good to talk to you, too.
6: Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
0: And as we talk about how politics have taken over the state school boards, call us up. 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Now, Andrew Spar, let's begin with you. This summer you wrote uh, in a piece that ran in the Tampa Bay Times that you believe parents and educators are too savvy to fall for what you call the division offered by the governor and the school board candidates aligned with him. Uh, How then do you account for the success of candidates endorsed by DeSantis and groups like Moms for Liberty in the midterms?
5: Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously Governor DeSantis, who had a wealth of resources, used those resources to get people elected. Um, but we can't lose sight of the fact that, uh, Twenty two local referendum passed in the state of Florida to fund public schools and in a lot of cases to specifically fund increases in teacher pay uh, and support staff pay, recognizing that there is a massive shortage of teachers and staff in our public schools. And at the end of the day, with nearly three million students in our public schools, that is the primary concern of parents and educators alike.
0: Well, what impact then do you think uh, these new members of school boards will have on public education and budgets and curriculum in some of the districts around the state?
5: So some of the folks who won were endorsed by the governor, there were some who were endorsed by the governor and our local unions, uh, and there were some who were endorsed by our local unions and, and my hope with everyone, who ever is serving on a school board is that they realize when they get in there to govern that you have to take into account every student every family in making sure that we as a public school system are looking out. For the public education of every child who comes into our schools. Uh, and so I know a lot of our local leaders have already reached out to these newly elected school board members and discussed concerns and strategies and hopes for the future. And, you know, my best hope is that everyone is going to work to focus on the education of our children and not the divisive politics we've seen uh, for too long here in the state of Florida.
0: Well, what about that? Uh, Our divisive politics have now made their way into local bodies that in the past were not all that political. We're talking about local school boards. Is it too late to even think of depoliticizing these boards and the elections, or are we looking at a fundamental shift in how candidates approach Uh, what is often really a gateway into public office, uh, starting at the school board level and then maybe running for higher offices later on?
5: So I think that the um, that that it's not too late to take the political parties out of our school boards. Right. I mean, I think at the end of the day, when we're focused on kids, there's no politics involved in that, right? We've got to make sure if we're focused on the kids that every child is getting the education they deserve and need. And it's important that we recognize that in our public schools, we have a spectrum of families and parents. We have single parent households. We have uh, multi-parent households. We have uh, situations where uh, we have uh, multi-family households. And so we have to recognize that We have parents who are working two and three jobs who may not be able to drop everything and get to a school, and we have cases where we have parents who are fortunate to have flexibility with the jobs they work, or they're stay-at-home parents. Uh, And as a school system, we have the obligation to make sure that every single parent's voice is heard and that every child is looked, interests are looked out for. And so, again, I'm hoping this divisiveness does not. Uh, show up in school board meetings once some of these new school board members take over next week. And and I'm hoping uh, that we stay focused on kids and the education they deserve and need, regardless of race, background, zip code, uh, or ability.
0: Now, when it comes to everyone having a voice, let me ask you, Andrew, uh, there have been reports that some of the supporters of certain far-right school board candidates have threatened and intimidated people at school board meetings. Uh, Some of these meetings have gotten very contentious in response to Moms for Liberty and their success. Another group of women who are more center left called red wine and blue uh, have been uh, moving to make their voice heard at places like school board meetings and other public forums. What effect do you think all this might have on the process? So I think, again,
5: uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out. There certainly was a lot of of rancor, if you will, at school board meetings earlier in this school year. It seems to have subsided uh, as the school year has gone on. And it will be interesting to see uh, if we continue to uh, see people returning back to the idea of the education of our children and not the political beliefs of adults. Um, you know, certainly there's still some chaos and confusion in our schools like in Broward County right now. <laughs> the superintendent last uh, this past week rather uh, was fired by a school board that was appointed by the governor and is on its way out the door with a new school board taking over there on Tuesday. Uh, there was also some other things that were done in the very last minute hushed, uh, rushed and hushed uh, approach. And so it will be interesting to me and it's my hope that what we're going to see as these new school boards get seated is that they focus on the work at hand and not the politics uh, that we've seen from political parties and, and some politicians in the state of Florida. You know, public schools are really best run by parents and educators in the community and not politicians who may have aspiration for higher office. Um, or who want to be in the favor of a political party, we really need to make sure that public education is focused on the reading, writing, math, honest history uh, of every child and that every child who comes into our schools feels safe and welcomed and loved and cared for so that they truly can get that education they deserve and need because a kid who doesn't feel safe and secured and loved is not learning.
1: You're listening to the Florida Roundup. We're talking about the political battle over nonpartisan school boards with Andrew Spa, president of the Florida Education Association. Let's bring Andrew Atterbury into this conversation. He covers education for Politico Florida. Andrew Atterbury, thanks for being with us again. Hey, thanks for having me. You can also join the conversation with your calls at 305 995 1800 or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Um, Andrew, political action committees, PACs, have been pouring money into school board elections across the country in these midterms. I mean, just how new is this phenomenon? Where did this all kick off? Where did it start?
6: I think I think this is relatively new. I think this is something that you've seen emerge over the last year and a half. Uh, mostly it's among conservative groups, folks uh, of that side of the spectrum who are wanting more folks like them involved in the political process locally. I think in Florida... You can see this, a lot of this stems from, a lot of this more action in school board stems from, I think, uh, moves that the legislature had taken in the past that some local school boards didn't exactly endorse, and maybe they dragged their heels in carrying out some of these laws. It's something you see a lot in Tallahassee the Capitol uh, legislature and, and the school boards having differences in how these policies should be developed locally. And I think you saw with uh, the governor, Ron DeSantis, with him endorsing candidates, that really started this action and then from there you see a lot of political action committees in the state from Senate, state senators state house members they're sending donations to school board candidates that, that they support and then from there you kind of see that okay if those people win their elections then, you, then you'll have in the future these people will you know they'll pass laws in tallahassee and maybe they'll get less pushback locally when they see mm-hmm. these things get enacted
1: there's been some other conservative groups I mean, moms for liberty is one that i think a lot of people have heard about but you've done some reporting on others like the 1776 project pack uh, what kind of issues did they say that they were kind of interested in, in pushing forward sure so 1776
6: pack their whole focus really is critical race theory that is their bread and butter you go to their website it pops up says hey do you know any, do you know any cases of critical race theory in your school send it to us and, you know, we'll vet it, that kind of thing. So that is, so they support candidates wholeheartedly that are with them on that idea of trying to get critical race theory outside of school. Um, and people who don't know what critical race theory is, it's kind of a whole bunch of different things. It's taken its light, light now, but I think kind of the easy way that I break it down is it's like lessons about white privilege, things like that. I, I know that that's something that came up a lot in the Florida legislature, all those uh, trainings that you would see about. Uh, race and things like that so that that is 1776 is big uh idea and what they did with their stuff they sent out a lot of mailers about candidates so you wouldn't see that pop up in like a typical uh political committee like finance sheet but they would send mail they would send mailers out for hundreds of candidates uh, across the country and i think like 49 in florida they they Mm -hmm. endorsed Um, and from those 49 30 they won 30 races so they had a lot of victories across florida for sure
1: School board races uh, have historically been non-partisan, but we're really seeing a kind of shift towards hyper-partisanship. I mean, what what do you think's behind that? What's driving it?
6: Well, I think a lot lot of this had to start with COVID, right? I mean, that was like a huge divide among people. That was a couple of years ago. People didn't like how masking policies, vaccine policies, they didn't like a lot of that stuff was affecting their kids in schools. And in Florida, especially conservatives really railed against those ideas. So that shows you where... Right there, where a lot of these people come out of the woodwork and they're totally on board with these conservative uh, plans too, because they don't want to see this in their local schools. And then you see the conservative legislature in Florida; they pass laws trying to make sure that people know more about what books are in schools, more transparency around curriculum. And these are all things that fall in line with what a lot of these parents who were frustrated from COVID and beyond that really draws into a lot of what they wanted and what they were curious about and what they wanted to know more about. see how their schools, what their schools actually had in the curriculum and things like that. And it's really, it seems like it's exploded since.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you been able to look at some of those turnout numbers in the midterm elections? I'm wondering what they're telling you about the impact of all of this interest and money being poured into these races, was turnout higher in these these races?
6: It was kind of a mixed bag. And the, the it, with the actual midterms with school boards, there were only like a couple school board races on there because they were uh, the runoffs. You have to go back to look at the September election. And in some cases I looked, it didn't seem like it was that higher, But there were some places like Sarasota uh, where they had. You know, they, they what they say is like groups like 1776 and conservatives and uh, DeSantis endorsed people there, too. They got a couple more seats there for, for Republicans. So they see that as like an area where they flip the seat or they flip the school board. And now they have a more conservative school board uh, and turnout there was definitely up. So there were some there were some areas for sure. Uh, But still, school boards aren't aren't always the elections that get all the attention. And for these runoffs, I'm sure there was a lot more focus uh, in November for these uh, Congress and these state seats more than there were for school boards.
1: Mm -hmm. You're listening to the Florida Roundup on Florida Public Radio, talking with Andrew Atterbury, who covers education for Politico Florida. Let's uh, go to the phones now. And Charles calling in from Jacksonville. Uh, Charles, go for it.
2: Hi there, guys. Um, you know, I find it the height of irony that, you know, they started all this, you know, the right-wingers that with. They wanted to remove the left-wing woke agenda <clears> from <throat> the kids, you know, in school. And, you know, their <clears> – <throat> I think their agenda is to drive this whole right-wing thing down – into the kids' education and indoctrinate them in fascist ways, you know, like mm. the Hitler youth of the '30s, almost. You know, it's it's. Mm-hmm. It, what's it gonna take? Another school shooting, uh, shooting to re, uh, lay bare the lack of any kind of action on making our schools more
1: secure. Thanks for your call. Uh, hearing some concerns there, Charles, about uh, school shootings. Let me go back to Andrew Sparr. Um, Andrew, your thoughts on that? I mean, school safety, you talked about funding and, and the like, but is that something that comes up with uh, teachers and, and your members?
5: Absolutely. Uh, not just school safety, but student discipline right now. You know, one of the things we've heard a lot of in Florida has been, uh, you know, the mental health uh, support for students in our schools. And, uh, you know, we used to, uh, after Parkland, there was a conversation about social emotional learning, SEL, and now we're being told don't teach SEL in our schools. Uh, But the reality of it is we have not adequately funded mental health in our schools. Uh, You know, the national average that's recommended for school counselors uh, to students is one to about 300. And in Florida, we're in the one to 700, one to 800 range of school counselors to students. We don't have enough. School psychologists, enough school social workers in our schools. Uh, and we really need to have support in our schools for our students. And we're not only concerned about the safety of students and all the people who work in our schools, we're also concerned about some of the behaviors we're seeing out of students right now. Because we have to remember, especially with our younger kids, you know, you look at second graders. They did not, they were not in school in kindergarten. They had disruptions in first grade and now they're in second grade and and we're somewhat back to normal. I would say we are back to normal in a lot of respects, uh, but they haven't had that time to really learn the appropriate behaviors in schools and, and it creates disruptions in learning. And it's a concern, I think, not just of educators in our school, but parents as well.
1: Yeah, it's been a pretty rough ride for teachers and students and parents over the last few years, no doubt. Uh, Here's a tweet from Terry who writes in that governors should not be allowed to overtly influence local school board elections. This will only alienate more teachers and make it more difficult to hire them. Creates an atmosphere of fear about what people can say. Democrats need a plethora of free talk. Uh, Andrew Atterbury, real quick, thoughts on that? I mean, it is kind of unusual to have a governor weighing in on school board races. Is this a, a flash in the pan or is we gonna see more of this? See, that's that's a.
6: I think that is a really big question about this. And when you look at Governor Ron DeSantis, I mean, people say before,
1: I mean, these are his officials,
6: they call him the education governor. He made education a big focus of, of his campaign before and then also throughout throughout legislative sessions. He's the one who started the really big push to, to pay teachers more. I know uh, President Swar will tell you there's a lot of issues with that, but he really did make a big push for that. So he's been very active in education. It's hard. Do you, do you really see a lot of other people who may be governor after him endorsing school board candidates? I don't know. I don't know if they'll be in the weeds enough to really take it to heart and realize that what kind of issue that is. Uh, I don't think a lot of other governors in the in the nation did that either. I mean, you probably asked some of these groups. They would like to have some governors weigh in and give their campaign uh, and give uh-huh. their candidates a little bit more uh, sway. But I, I, it really could be a flashback. It could be really Governor DeSantis owning mm-hmm. this. I, it's, it's hard to tell at this point.
1: With uh, Andrew Atterbury, covering education for Politico, Florida, and also Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association. Thank you both for joining us this hour. Thank you and have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, thanks.
0: Thanks, guys. And up next, NASA heads back to the moon with the Artemis rocket. Taking off from the Kennedy Space Center on a test flight. Did you watch? More on that when we return. This is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville.
1: And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, after a series of delays, NASA finally launched its Artemis One mission from the Kennedy Space Center. The SLS, or Space Launch System, the space agency's most powerful rocket ever, blasted off in the early hours of Wednesday morning.
0: Yeah, great to see. Now, the Artemis mission will send an uncrewed Orion capsule on a 26-day orbit of the moon. On the way, the spacecraft will gather some data to help prepare for an eventual mission to send astronauts back to the moon. What are your thoughts about this? To the moon, Alice. (laughs) That was my parents' show, The Honeymooners. Uh, 305 995 1800, (laughs) as we welcome WUFT reporter Jacob Sedesi and Fox Weather space journalist and producer Emily Speck. Good to have you both on the show.
7: Thank you so much for having
0: for having having us. All right, Jacob, let's begin with you. You were at the launch Wednesday. What was it like?
7: It was a very emotional experience. I've been following this story for the past four months, and it was just um, a long road, lots of late nights, lots of sleepless nights, so many times where it felt like we were getting close, and then something would just get in the way and throw the launch off. And um, this time we could tell Um, the entire night as the fueling operations began things went smoothly and of course um, there were some obstacles in the road but nothing that set the launch back uh, beyond this window um, unlike previous attempts and um, everything resolved itself and um, the mission manager Charlie Blackwell Thompson uh, declared that it was go for launch and within 10 minutes we were all outside watching there were um, hundreds of people at the press site, and the vast majority of them were crying. I remember the one image I just can't get out of my head um, from being there was seeing my news director next to me afterwards, and she had tear tracks running down the oh. side of her face, from her eyes to her ears, um, just from looking up at the sky and crying. Um, and it was just a very emotional and um, powerful moment to be part of that history. Sure.
0: So what happens next then for the Orion spacecraft?
7: Yeah, so this is uh, a 25-day long mission. It it could have been up to 40 days. Um, it depended on when they were going to be launching the the mission. Um, but for this launch window, it's it's a 25-day long mission, um, and there are only test dummies on the uh, rocket this time. But in the future, there will be humans. And so the goal of this mission is just to test how well the equipment holds up and to make sure that the new Orion capsule is safe for humans to go on for the next mission. So uh, Orion is currently on its way to the moon. It will be uh, completing some orbits uh, around the moon and then headed back home and splashing down.
1: Speaking with Jacob Sadesi, who's uh, given us some eyewitness account there of that uh, mighty rocket launch. uh, Pretty bright too, sort of lit lit up the uh, sky and the land for miles around. From judging by the footage, let's welcome uh, Emily Speck into this conversation. Emily, good to have you along, and. As Jacob was pointing out, the capsule doesn't have a crew on board yet. There is that mannequin. There's a bunch of satellites they'll be deploying along the way too. Tell us a little more about what's going to be happening with and how they're going to be collecting that data for use in future missions.
8: Sure. Absolutely. Um, So, you mentioned there are about 10 satellites along the way that will get deployed and they all have different scientific objectives, which is exciting. And there are three different uh, mannequins, or they're calling moonikins, on board. Um, Mm -hmm. All of that data from the, the moonikins will kind of help understand what astronauts will go through on the way to the moon Um, they're passing through more radiation than say what the space station astronauts would do or someone going into low earth orbit so it's very important to understand what this radiation impact could have on the human body for a, a long duration mission like what they want to do with the moon so once those sensors uh, get back to the Earth, then NASA is going to analyze that and it will help them determine what's going to happen with, with humans coming up on these missions and possibly improve, you know, their spacesuit design or any other protections they might need. Uh, one of those devices, it's actually a, a radiation protection vest, so it's it's meant to kind of ward off radiation, protect your your vital organs from radiation. Uh, and then another mannequin doesn't have that vest, so we'll kind of get those those two sides there um, with the mm-hmm. placebo effect.
1: 305-995-1800 is the number. If you saw that launch, want to share your thoughts on that. Some uh, thoughts, too. Love to hear some questions as well from you on uh, the purpose of the mission and what NASA is up to and some of the commercial space agencies as well. 305-995-1800 is the number. Send us a tweet. We're at Florida Roundup. Emily, doesn't NASA have a lot of this data already from previous moon missions? I mean, they've they've been there before. So are they kind of reinventing the wheel a little bit here?
8: Yeah, that's a good question. Why go back? And I know everyone wants to know why we're going back to the moon. Um, but the moon is a big place. And during the Apollo missions, we only explored a very small region of the moon and the region we're going to now in the south pole it's a it's a shadowed region it's very dark it's very very vastly different from from what the apollo astronauts experienced so the reason that nasa has chosen different landing zones in this area is because they're hoping that they can learn different facts about the moon and how things formed um you know there's some craters that they hope to explore and the hope is that there is water ice um, you know you think okay water ice is just water but we're talking about h2o here that could be mm-hmm. turned into rocket fuel or drinking water and the moon is a jumping off point so nasa and and others commercial partners and other countries they they want to harness those resources that way they can use the moon as a jumping off point to go to mars and essentially the hardest part of of space travel is getting off Earth, right? So if some of those resources are already on the moon and can be harvested, it really helps uh, NASA and its, and its partners kind of get further along in space travel.
1: Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. What about the general public? I mean, there's always been a lot of public interest in NASA and commercial space. And I'm wondering if they are buying into the return to the moon.
8: That's it's a mixed bag. (laughs) I think you'll hear from some people who are just absolutely so excited that NASA is going back to the moon and and this time they're planning to go and stay, and it is you know NASA's they've dubbed it the Artemis generation. So this is very different than the Apollo generation, and mm-hmm. you know they're sending the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. So they're really trying to inspire, and you know we do know that the people who will be living on the moon. This this is the next generation, mm-hmm. um, and then eventually eventually Mars. So it's it's inspiring for for that particular. Mm-hmm group of people but then there are the doubters who say okay this is a very expensive rocket you know you're talking about four billion dollars um but you know it's that that is hard it's it's taxpayer dollars at the end of the day
0: omar in miami Uh, yeah one one second and we'll get you to react to that jacob omar in miami go ahead
4: uh, yeah, I'm I'm absolutely excited. I'm part of the old Apollo generation, and I think it's fantastic that there is an Artemis generation that gets to play in the Moon Age daydream. I mean, it's, <laughs> just, it's an incredible opportunity, and, you know, it's, it's, the, it's pushing forward everything. Everything that we know moves forward with these advances in space travel. And you know, every time you look up, you're looking back in time and looking out. It's it's just, it's amazing to watch. And like, you know, I've taken my kids to launches, and the excitement is palpable. And if you haven't been to a launch, get to one. You know, Falcon Heavy is going up twice this year. It's it's just
0: yeah, lots of chances to go see it. I couldn't agree more, Omar. Yeah, and I can hear the excitement in your voice, which I think you shared, Jacob. Go ahead.
7: Yeah. uh, So again it's not just this is just one part of the mission um th- the program is going to continue as of right now they're talking about an artemis 2 sending people around the moon and then an artemis 3 where we send people back to the moon to spend roughly a week there i believe the plan is but um it's not stopping there and they're planning on going uh, further and further forward again to mars and um i know that there's been a lot of doubters um as emily was saying about Uh, how well the mission was going to go, especially after every scrub and every issue, you know, the hydrogen leaks again and again and again. Um, But I think the doubters, a a lot of them, uh, kind of started to become more supportive of the mission after, you know, it just got off the ground. Um, And, you know, those scrubs, I I spoke with former astronaut Victor Glover um, after one of the scrubs, and he just wants to remind the public that, a scrub doesn't necessarily indicate a bad thing. Uh, they just want to really wait until everything is right. They can't take any risks, uh, again, because this is a massive taxpayer expense. And they want to make sure that when they do it, they do it right.
0: Absolutely. Uh, what is it? Measure twice, cut once, something like that. Uh, uh, Emily, uh, before we let you go, anything else you can share about the eventual move to Mars?
8: Um, well, you know, there's still a lot that needs to happen before NASA makes that that leap from the moon to Mars uh, and, and not just with Mars, but with the Artemis program in general, we still need to have the SpaceX Starship orbital launch maybe later this year, that's the spacecraft that's going to actually land astronauts on the moon. There are pieces of the Lunar Gateway, which is kind of like a tiny space station that's going to orbit the moon. Those need to be launched and assembled. That's going to be where the astronauts stop before they head down to the moon. So, as you can tell, there's a lot of different working pieces and things that need to go right before we can look ahead. to Mars.
0: But thank you both for your expertise, WUFT's Jacob Sidesi and Emily Speck with Fox Weather. Thanks again. Thank you
7: so much. Have a great thank holiday.
0: You. And catch that next space shot, everybody. We'll cover it here on the Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are producers.
1: WLRN's vice president of radio and our technical director is Peter Mantz, Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Isabella Da Silva, and Craig George. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at aaronlebos.com I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Make it a great weekend. We'll be back next Friday at noon.
4: Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through ABCFWS.com.